So yesterday, Johnny and I were driving back to Raleigh from D.C., and we stopped at McDonald's at like 11 p.m., and uh, he got the toast chicken tenders, and I said, you should ask for that sauce that everybody's talking about, the Rick and Morty sauce. Yeah. And then Johnny was like, no, I'm not going to ask for that. I'm not going to ask for that. And I said, no, you should ask for it. And then but neither one of us could remember the name, so I went up there, and I was like, do you have the secret sauce? <laughs> <laughs> and this guy was like, what sauce are you talking about? Can you jizz on my burger? <laughs> <laughs> That's really what I'm looking for. Well, welcome back to the Things We Watch cast, uh, your source for all your uh, movie entertainment. Uh, My name is Nick. I'm your effervescent host, and with me I have Andrew, or who else else is there with you, Andrew? Well, I I know our listeners are going to be shocked to hear this, because we thought, we really thought he was gone, but uh, but Mixed Boy Matt is is back from the dead. He's the savior of the podcasts. That's what he is. Well, let's hope he sticks for... He sticks around and gives us some of that sweet, sweet music before he ascends yep. and leaves us out to dry. Goes on to higher music, praising the Lord. Yep, so this week we're going to jump back into uh, another series we're doing. And now uh, we, we brought you the Alien movies last time, and now we're going into uh, some Western remakes. Some modern- yeah, and who won last week? By a long shot, Alien 3 came out from behind <laughs> and uh, took it. <laughs> well, Nick, what are you bringing this week? You're starting us mm. off. What are you doing? I brought in the big guns. We are doing Western remakes. There's no better Western remake than True Grit, the Coen Brothers remake from 2010, 2011, whenever that happened. Yeah, it's 2010. 2010. But yes, that is what I brought to the table. It, it does one of the best jobs at recontextualizing the old romanticization of the Western aesthetic and lifestyle. Basically, every Western after Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood has to uh, address the fact that the West sucked. And in a way, uh, True Grit doesn't really start dealing with that until the end. But uh, if you compare it to the original uh, it doesn't deal with it at all. Uh, there is no, like, context of the time. Uh, the ending is totally changed. Uh, so, uh, also the quality of the filmmaking and acting is unbeatable. The Coen Brothers movie. I mean, Fargo. You want to fight? Yeah. So, you want to fight? <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, I, I, I have taken the position against you here. And I think that my argument is, is less about that the film is not good or that the film doesn't improve on the original because the original is pretty terrible. Like even, even then, I think people should have realized how terrible it was uh, between the prop sets and then the characters, uh, uh, Maddie Ross being, you know, she's like 30 in that movie, <laughs> but yeah. she's supposed to be playing a 14-year-old. Uh, well, I've got to take care of myself. Well, you should by now. You should be able to do that. <laughs> what I have the biggest problem with the Joel and Ethan's uh, remake is the character of Maddie Ross. 
Uh, I think that she is uh, both the narrator in Charles uh, Portis's original novel, and she's the lead actress in the actual uh, film. But her character, after she initially hires uh, Rooster Cogburn, her uh, role is immediately diminished. And that, you know, we had a real opportunity to have this kind of like feminist voice in a Western that, you know, we don't really get ever. Some people could make the argument that kind of happens in Unforgiven or, uh, you know, later on in other films, but we missed a real opportunity here with this one. I've seen this movie listed on whenever people like rank Coen Brothers movies. I've often seen this one listed as the worst one for some reason, but I do get what Reed is saying where like once Rooster and LaBeef are introduced into this story, then it just becomes this kind of like little vignettes that feature, you know, one of these rough characters like, oh, you know, LaBeef disappears for a while and then he comes back and then we meet the guy in the bear skin and all that. So, yeah, Maddie kind of gets lost in the current of it. And and also you talk about, I mean, Nick, you, you have a really good idea of how this movie goes to recontextualize uh, the old ideas of the West, but also you talk about how shitty the West is. But it doesn't do it in a way that like tackles anything like gender identity or misogyny or racism or ageism, right? Because she's young. It doesn't. It doesn't do any of that. Uh, you know, I think about. I don't really. I don't know if you've guys seen it. it uh, I watched it in a Western class back in college. It's called The Ballad of Little Joe. Susie Amos, who's kind of fallen off the map, but she and Ian McKellen and Anthony Hopkins are in this uh, film that she has to keep secret that she's a, a male. It's kind of one of these gender splitting, like, you know, hiding kind of things. You know, we don't get anything like that in this movie. And and we have it early on, I think, when, you know, she's a little bit more authoritative and she's saying, you know, I'm hiring you to do this. But, you know, eventually he's doing it less as her employee and more as her, like, protector. And I think when it switches to that, it 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 takes a lot from her. I mean, you can even see that in the Academy Award nominations, right? Because she got nominated for Best Supporting Actress, not even Best Lead Actress. Yeah. And, you know, you could take that as a grain of salt, right? That the you know, producers probably did that strategically for her to possibly get nominated. But at the same time, the fact that they even thought that shows that the film isn't even willing to, to fight for it. I don't know if you can say the film's not willing to fight for it, but okay, I get it. It's about the immature drive and, like, that old school justice. Like, it's not about a woman in the West. It's like, how often do they, I mean, they call her a little girl and stuff, but the amount of time that... And spanker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we can talk about that but scene the, later. That's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of times her gender actually holds her back within her scenarios is limited at best. I mean, it's about it's about that youthful, like, innocence of, like, oh, my dad got killed, so I gotta go kill the guy who killed my dad. And it's that old-school Western mentality, because he doesn't have a son, or if they do, it's the younger brother. Yeah. So it, like, falls to her shoulder. And then she has these two different role models of how to extract justice, and she takes the one of the broken old man... And by the end of the movie, she's a broken old lady, and it's over, and it's super sad. The end of it's interesting, right, because you, like you said, they changed that from the original. And, you know, and it kind of buttresses it with, you know, the narr- like uh, voiceover narration we get in the beginning, and then we kind of abandon, which is fine. I'm not, like, one of those people that think voiceover narration is bad. But, but it's you also, know, you also have to recognize that the voiceover is in her voice as an adult. And I, I, I think I want more of that. Right, and, you know, we see, I, I forget the actress's name, but, you know, we see her, like, really flourish later in, in you know, the House of Cards uh, when she's Heather Dunbar. Yeah, exactly. One of, like, the best roles in that entire show that they 
you know, continually don't know what to do with. But, it, you know, I almost want more of that finale. You know, she can, because it helps further put the whole movie in her terms. And I think this movie obviously does it better than the original, but I think that there's still more to be done. I don't want any added to the end, because the end is just the one thing she had left to do in her life was try and find the people she extracted justice with. And that's like the last thing she did. I do like that she's not emotional on those final scenes, though. It's, it's like short. The, it's, it doesn't need to drag on. It would just be her going home and being sad. And we already yeah. know that's going to happen. Right. And we don't have to. And by her being, you know, kind of non-emotional during it, it shows that, you know, she hasn't changed that much. I don't know. You're kind of winning me over to your side. But <laughs> I still think there's more to be done here. What do you uh, think, Andrew? Oh, yeah. I was going to say, like, I do think it's interesting in terms of thinking like how the character of Maddie could have been better represented or better, you know, have more command in the movie. It's funny how in this, like her innocence is somehow like overpowering in a lot of the more toxically masculine situations. Like whenever she argues the horse trader out of his money, which I like, it's kind of impressive, you know, how she does that. Or like, you know, her just like running into the river whenever LaBeef and, and, uh, and Rooster try to leave her. And uh, it's just interesting to me how we go from that. And then when we do see her when, her, when she's older, it's like <laughs> the innocence is like kind of calcified into it's not bitterness, but it's just like, like you said, like lack of emotion. I, I'm still pretty much on Nick's side right now, but there's yeah, cracks. Reed, you there's also, there's you're also cracks looking for this. like a great feminist narrative. And hey, that's we should be looking for that. I agree. That's what we should be on the lookout for. But I think there is not going to be that grand gesture in this kind of book because it is fairly down to earth, pretty gross in the dirt sort of thing. I mean, at the end, uh, Rooster Cogburn pulls out like two pistols and he has the reins in his mouth. Like mm -hmm. she, she needed, she needed help at some point. There was like no world where she was going to do that. We'll come back and uh, discuss some uh, few scenes from either side and uh, talk some more about this movie. to the uh, resurrected mix boy sitting across the room from me uh, singing those sweet hosannas on high with the seraphim and the cherubim. Our very own Lazarus. Mix boy Laz. Our very own Adonis. He did come back much better looking. It's amazing, really. Right. But, yeah. So we're back. Not that he wasn't before, but now. <laughs> it's just a better product. It was a good product. Now it's better. So, Nick, let's uh, let's get back into True Grit. Um, give, me a, give me a scene that you think will will convince me that this is the best Western remake. Well, if we're talking about Western remake, I'm going to go back to what I was saying earlier about that kind of recontextualization. So we're going to end up at the end of the film, because the end is where original film and this remake differ, although the remake has the ending from the original book. Has anyone here read the book? I have. Yes. 
Okay. See, it's so good. If you haven't read it, I think we all recommend. Yeah. Go check out Grim Grit, written by an Arkansas native. Yeah, it's a very Arkansas book. <laughs> so in the original film, they uh, they go out, they avenge Maddie's father, and then Rooster Cogburn just rides her on home, and then he hops over the fence, and he actually goes on to have a sequel with Catherine Hepburn <laughs> called Rooster and the Lady. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but he rides off into the sunset, off into the mountains of Fort Smith. In the remake, uh, we see Elizabeth Marvel walking around with one arm. It's her voice who's been the narration the whole time. We haven't really seen her that much. Uh, we saw her, I think, at the very, very beginning. But we see her at the very end. She talks to the two old men at the carnival to find Rooster uh, and is further than cold. I think she really kind of goes towards rude. Yeah, uh, there's a real difference uh, in her tone, and because I mean the the direct comparison is like the man with the horses. Like she has to kind of show her respect so that she can still get what she wants. But here, clearly, like she doesn't have to do that anymore. She's like a more hardened person. Uh, she finds out that Rooster is dead. Uh, says the another rude thing, and then walks away. Uh, talks about how she could like never really found the beef. Because mm. it's the Western, it's Western times. You can't just find people. You ever think about that? We can't just find people a hundred <laughs> years ago. <laughs> Reed, if you left work today, I could find you in thirty minutes. I know you have uh, to track. You get jealous. I need to know where you are. I need to know. I need to know where you are. <laughs> and then the fact that she has her, her his body exhumed, in arguably an act of selfishness. That whole sequence like raises a lot of interesting questions for me anyway. You know, I partly kind of wanted to choose that scene uh, for evidence of what kind of movie I wanted. Yeah. Uh, because that final scene, I, we talked about this a little bit before the break, but that scene shows us kind of what I wanted the whole movie to be. I, You know, in all intents and purposes, this is almost not like a Gus Van Sant psycho shot-for-shot remake, but it is pretty pretty faithful to the original thankfully it isn't a shot for shot because it's it is obviously better roger deakins and and joel and ethan cohen obviously can do wonders with the camera and also with the script and the characters and the acting so thankfully it's all better than that but what this movie does is because it has such great acting from jeff bridges and he's you know living up to this kind of caricature of a of a person it swallows maddie's kind of character Whole, right, even in those early scenes that I'm thinking about, when she uh, hires him, you know, there, there's that scene where he, she's trying to get him motivated to go, and he's in the bathroom, and he's like saying, you know, I'm, I can't be rushed, I'm doing my business in the bathroom. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like hilarious, and right, and it's obviously meant for us to laugh. But at the same time, though, it takes away from her like to do this, right? She she's always seen as like a little girl, and she is, but she's never she's never elevated past that, I don't think, until these final moments. Uh, when you see that his masculinity is faded and he's like some, you know, sideshow traveling, you know, shooter, right? He's not even like a, he's not this famous cowboy that went on this and this and other amazing adventures or this like lawman, like you put it, Nick. Reed, I, I think you missed the point. I think that ending is perfect because it shows that her existence was no better. She ended up just as hollow and alone just like he is. Yeah, and also it's it's a situation in which like we we don't see the intervening years, but probably a lot of the reason she is alone has to do with her experiences with Rooster and also the fact I I mean it's probably a traumatic experience losing your arm <laughs> as a child with this man. 
So his his intervening in her life kind of shaped that that time and made her that way in some way. Damn, I just keep wanting to come at you, but I think, I think, you're, I think you've got it. I guess in my quest to try to find, you know, this, the next, you know, Ballad of Little Joe or or any of the, or like the Holmes Men, that movie with Hillary Swank mm-hmm. and Tommy Lee Jones two years ago that was billed as oh, the Holmes Men. The Holmes Men. Right. Uh, and I, you know, I looked past the fact that her fallibility, right, because there's also the idea that her, she's alone because she's, Rude, right? Yeah. That, you know, yeah. she has that rudeness, and but yeah, you know, I guess she has that you could southern make... toughness that is just actually just kind of rude, right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, she she kind of lacks a charm uh, that even Rooster has. So, you know, maybe when I'm looking to try to find a little bit more in her textuality, I, I'm kind of looking past what might be there, right, and saying that like. She's still, it's still her actions. It's still, she has agency, right? Because she's the one being rude that might cause her to be alone in the end. But I, but you see how I could want more of that ending, right? Yeah. Throughout the film. Yeah. And yeah. Maybe that and is it, Charles' book, but you know, when you're talking about recontextualizing the old film, maybe there's ways that we could put a little bit more of that throughout. I also feel like if she were older, it would be easier to do that. But since mm. she's like 13, it's more that she's a child and less that she's a woman, just like a female. I'm just trying to think of scenes where we get like a little more of her like interior mindset, like one-on-one. So there's a scene with the guy with the horses. And then there's the scene with Labeef in the when she's in bed and they're like oh, yeah. going back and forth. I wonder if, if there had been more of that, like more just like one-on-one interactions where we see her kind of asserting herself. Because at points in the film, she is just kind of getting like passed around. Like once she gets captured by the the Ned Pepper gang, like at that point, it just kind of becomes like she's there, and it's a it's like a western shootout movie. <laughs> like right, she's kind of side. I'll, I'll say this: there. that's that's less and less in the book. Yeah, or at least when she is there, it's still you know being told from her perspective. Right, right? that's what I was saying because the, the book is so like totally from her perspective that I think there could be a better way to have adapted that, but. I, I can't exactly imagine how they would have done it. Right, because as much as I don't mind voiceover narration, I would have hated it if it was always through the Right. Time. You'd end up with like a Shawshank situation. Right. And that's not going to work for this. We'll come back in a second, give you our final thoughts on True Grit. So stick around. I speak the truth. I am a feared of no man. I am a feared of no creature. I am my own man. I am Clifton of Port Antonio. Do you feel me? Yeah, that's incredible. That's, that's literally incredible. <clears throat> thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Really, I mean, I don't know what to say, but thank you. I want to try something. Um, I'd like to do it again, but this time I'd like to try it with a brogue. Uh, well, no, I think we, you know, we, we, we're good. We've got everything. I've really seen everything I could possibly want. You sure? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, acting aside, it's been great to catch up. <laughs> Kenny B. <laughs> this guy's one crazy hombre back in the day. Do you remember that hotel in Maidstone? Oh, who can, who, can, who can forget that? We did a tour of the Medway Basin. Thank you. And this fella, <laughs> well, they'll have to repay for that hotel room. <laughs> I love what you're doing these days. Ken, I really admire your balls. Okay, the Bee Man. Already. The Killer Bee. The Brown Plane. Who is that? Not a fucking clue. This has been a Brannock break. 
featuring a scene from Mindhorn. Oh man, big shout out to uh, to old Ken, Sir Ken, Kenneth Branagh for bringing us back in. We always love his shit. And uh, the best of luck to him on his uh, Orient Express. Yeah, I hope he catches that guy. The only guy he seems to have caught is Johnny Depp in his films. Well, guys, True Grit, what do, what do we got to say? Well, I got to say, I do love this film, and I think that it's uh, I think it's one of the best of these, uh, you know, these kind of like modern uh, remakes and uh, some of the best acting performances we've seen. It's strangely bizarre that he did not win his best actor for this. He won it for Crazy Heart, yeah. which if you see Crazy Heart, it's kind of ridiculous that he won best actor for that. But regardless, he sang a, he sang a song. He sang a song to Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh, and, and I think Maddie, Haley Steinfeld is, you know, she's a treasure. And I think, you know, she's going to be around for a long time. And then, of course, you know, this was kind of like when everybody was realizing that Josh Brolin could, you know, lead a film and, and it has Matt Damon in a, in a great Matt Damon role. It It's a great movie, but, uh, you know, I wanted more out of it. And uh, talking to Nick, you know, maybe it's in there more than I thought, you know, these, this feminist element, but there's still ways that I think could be improved on it. But those improvements are, are in essence, like returning to the, the original script by Charles Portis. But... I have to say that Nick's argument is very strong, mm-hmm. and mm, I hate that. I concur. I hate it when Nick says something good. It it ruins his brand, really. He's not supposed to be right. <laughs> He's supposed to be the one that chooses Alien 3. <laughs> hey, I'm going to do that sometimes. It's fun for me. I like being stupid. Ladies and gentlemen, the argument comes from Reed. He wants a movie that does not exist, uh, and he can't describe the movie he wants. I don't know what else to tell you other than to say... He then still says that he loves it, so I don't know what he would improve. I rest my case. There's no reason to punch down. <laughs> oh, but I'm so high up. I think it would be interesting if we did a Coen Brothers version of this. Oh, yeah. Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. We can't do an hour and a half on Burn After Reading. No, I think Andrew would choose Hudsucker Proxy. He seems like a Hudsucker Proxy guy. I would have to go and look, but that is that is a good one. Um, the hula hoop is an important cultural thing that we need to discuss more. As is Brendan Fraser. But uh, my final thoughts on True Grit. As we've been talking, I realize like I've been going back and thinking like, what do I remember most from this movie? Like, what scenes do I remember the most? I was thinking about kind of the surreal parts where like we meet the guy in the bear suit, uh, Forrester, the dentist in the in the woods, and then there's that scene. I laughed my ass off every time at this whenever rooster goes into that general store at the beginning when they first head out on the trail and there's those two there's those two kids and he just knocks that kid off of the railing and the the kid gets back up and he comes out and he throws him on the ground again and it's so it's it's an awful thing because he's just beating the, it's this old man beating the crap out of like a like a native kid anyway those are the moments like like it's it's weird to me like like then, then those kind of stand out because they're part of the whole like bizarre western because I think that is a good recontextualizing because we don't ever see like surreal funny moments like that and other and that many other westerns it's more like the grittiness and the bleakness that that's kind of what overpowers Maddie's narrative in this for me so I'm still kind of like I can see both sides of this but yeah it's it's a strong contender Nick. I like hearing that. We like telling you that every once in a we'll while. We, see. Don't, we we'll, don't want you we'll to be see because uh, Andrew Andrew's got quite the trick up his sleeve. Yep. And I think I've got a pretty solid pick for next week too. So we'll we'll see how well he lasts. You sound confident. <laughs> I I'm pretty confident. This is uh, I've got a pretty good one. I've got a pretty good western. And Andrew's got uh, more of an Andrew Eastern. type of pick. All right, Nick. If people want to see 
more of you or hear more of you or look at your face and your uh, your pretty beard, where would they find you? Uh, you can find me on a, a Nightline uh, before Jimmy Kimmel. How often are you on that? Uh, every other week. Oh, you know, I, I, I recruit for colleges. But then oh, on, on, right. the side, on the side, I, I do Nightline. Just whenever, like, whenever they need a special correspondent or, like, Barbara Walters is busy or she dead. She's not dead. No. No. She's too powerful. Mm-hmm. She has those important people. Barbara, if you're out there, come on the podcast. We're inviting you now. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, at I am the Nick Daly. And Andrew, you are recently unlocked. I am unlocked now. You may all come read the tweets at Sugar Biscuits. That's sugar spelled normally, and then Biscuits, B-I-S-K-I-T-S. Come and get your Sugar Biscuits. And Reed, what about you? Where, where, where are you at? Nope. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week. <laughs> Wait till you